So Lucas, Ken, Ken, Ken. Lucas. Hey Lucas, nice to meet you. Likewise. It's Ken's birthday today. What? Yeah. yeah. Happy birthday! That's fantastic. Sixty fifth. Excellent. Congratulations, <laughs> man. Excellent. I get my first rocking chair check next month. Sweet. <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> I want that too. <laughs> Ken, how is it? How is it there in the mountains today? Oh, it, it, there, it's the clouds have been moving in, and it's supposed to get rainy later. But uh, mm. I went to the gym early this morning on the way back, just at sunrise. It was just spectacular. Mm. <laughs> the leaves are like in their prime, and you know the light the low light just seems to bring that out even more so mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty beautiful mm. where where are you at again ken it's uh between north wilkesboro and boone in north carolina mm -hmm. <clears throat> for mm -hmm. folks that don't know that's the western part of the state yeah in the mountains ken how long have y'all been there uh well we bought this land let's see 24 years ago, um, almost 25, and um, right, just right after Cindy and my uh, wedding, and so we're getting ready to celebrate our uh, 25th anniversary, uh, November the 1st. Oh, wow. Congratulations <laughs> on that one, too, man. That's yeah. amazing. So we've been here long enough, and... You know, as you know, uh, a plant fanatic can like do a whole lot in 25 years. <laughs> and so I walk out there and it's like, really? Did I do this? <laughs> you know, things are reaching a level of maturity that just I can really appreciate now. <laughs> yeah. So. How long do you think it takes generally being on a piece of land and engaging with it in the way that y'all do to reach, I mean, clearly the level of maturity it's at now has taken 25 years, but how long do you think it takes to cultivate it and relate to it in such a way that it, it comes into some level of maturity? Well, you know, uh, there's many different levels. Um, of how to answer that question one is you know um when i'm talking about the 25 year garden i'm talking mostly about the ornamental aspects mm. of it but at the same time i began right at the very at the get-go with um uh cultivating the land for gardening and food and and so it's it's expanded in both directions over the years uh to the point that i don't know i mean you know it's, it's like this uh uh you as you learn more and apply what you're learning you know you really uh increase the uh, fertility and the the whole game of being able to grow food here. And so that's been a big thing. Um, I guess, you know, from the very beginning, I, I was just introduced to the concepts of permaculture right before we bought this land. And so coming into it, 
it had been over farmed and just, you know, all the the same things that are so common here up in the foothills. And um, and so I was looking at restoration and permaculture concepts about how to plug in to the natural energetic flow uh, without you know, trying to change it or disturb it or, and so, uh, so our goal from the very beginning is to be able to live here and, and produce our food and, and all those things, uh, in harmony with the natural energetic flows. And so we've accomplished that. And as time has gone on, you know, we've learned a lot more, we've, you know, definitely uh, improved in the ways that we do that. And so, um, so I've been really happy about that. And so the, the concept of permaculture really um, caught my eye early on, just simply because it's not, it's not defined as one specific thing. But it really is the idea of plugging in to the natural energy energy flows of the land, and so you don't, you know, call the bulldozers <laughs> and uh, you know and come in and like try to rearrange everything to make it fit what you want to do. You work with what's there, and um, and try to. Any changes that you make should be um, improvements to the ecological system. And so, um, so, you know, in some ways, you know, we haven't done as well as we would like, but on many different ways, over 25 years, we've perfected it pretty mm. well. And so... I'm feeling really good about where we are right now. Uh, That's awesome. Any, yeah, any of the agriculture that happens here, fruit production, that sort of thing, is totally holistic. And so we, you know, just don't introduce, you know, any kinds of chemicals or we don't try to manipulate uh, the ecology of the area. Uh, but yet try to like find ways to, to be able to be in harmony with it. So, so Ken, when you talk about, um, the energy flow of the land, what, can you unpack that or, uh, develop it a little bit for us? Because I have ideas about what I think that might mean, <clears throat> but I have no idea if those ideas are accurate in any way. Um, right. So I'd love to hear from you and, and understand a little bit more about what that looks like, what that feels like, um, you know, any ways that you could help us understand it. Okay. Well, you know, um, one of the, probably the best places to start is with water. And so w there was a pond that was already here. It wasn't a natural pond. It was built. Uh, probably 40 years ago. And uh, and that was a big plus because I need 
a lot of water to be able to grow plants and to do a lot of the things I'm doing. And so, um, so that made it really easy because I was able to plug into that. And so I pumped the water up through the valley and uh, use it, you know, as irrigation as needed. And, and yet any water, any uh, excess water runoff, et cetera, uh, goes right back into the same watershed. So we have a little stream that comes through here. And so any runoff goes directly into the stream back into the pond. And so um, that, you know, that was one of the big pluses when we first moved here that already existed. And we were able to just plug into that. Um, and then the stream itself, because the previous owners had always just kind of kept it all mowed down and clean, you know, uh, in the typical way. And what had resulted was a lot of collapsing of the banks and erosion and, and that sort of thing. And so one of the first things we did is really attacked anywhere on the land that we were having that or having erosion problems. Um, you know, we either um, established uh, vegetation or allowed natural vegetation to establish itself, or we uh, cut brush and rake leaves and that sort of thing and, and, uh, and help these areas to heal. So at this point, you know, even though there was a big timbering uh, project on this land probably 30 years ago, um, all that's healed and we have almost no erosion. And, and of course, uh, you know, that's a big part of the energy flow. Otherwise, you know, it's like plugging into what's already here and utilizing it to max. Uh, so that means like using materials and products that are part of the land that go back into the land. And so from a permaculture perspective, you know, there's concepts like hugel mounds, you know, we use hugel mounds. And in that case, you dig a trench and you just harvest rotting wood from the property and fill the trench and then build a mound up over the top of it with the dirt that came out. And it's a incredibly fertile way of uh, uh, growing food. And so, so what I do is then I put compost over the top of it and, um, and I, um, you know, plant the plants directly into the mounds. And so, you know, that's a, another way. And the, the, one of the advantages of Hugel mounds is that it allows you to um, avoid, you know, drainage and runoff problems. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of, we're in a valley, but we're kind of on a slope. So in really, really hard rains, you know, the field becomes a river. And so the two things that 
that I've learned to be able to like uh, keep as much of the energy here as possible is to uh, divert the water, slow it down, and the hugel mounds uh, serve that purpose as well. Um, um, and so then also um, you're also com uh, cultivating a lot of the microbes and and mycorrhizal fungi mm -hmm. that are growing on the wood that are beneficial to the roots of the plants. And uh, so it's like, it's an incredible system that doesn't take a huge amount of effort to get, get it all set up. So that's part of, you know, harnessing the energy flow. And mm -hmm. then, and then otherwise, you know, things like, you know, growing, mushrooms on wood from the land and you know converting uh you know trees into food you know that's a big part of it mm -hmm. and then when the logs are finished then you can incorporate them into your next hugel mound right so it's like trying to find as many of those cycles as you possibly can um to um, be able to, you know, tap into the energy flow of what exists already on the land without outside inputs uh, or, you know, uh, manipulating it too much. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Yes. Yeah. So you're, if I'm understanding correctly, looking to create kind of a semi-closed loop with the land that you're right. working, right? I mean, exactly. yeah. obviously there's some throughput that's coming from outside, outside in quotes here of the system, but outside of the immediate ecological niche, but to support that uh, regenerative transformative process as much as you possibly can. Exactly. And then the things that you do uh, rely on outside inputs, for instance, uh, I have a, a situation with a local horse farmer and of course they're cleaning out their stalls every day and generating huge amount of horse manure. Mm -hmm. And so we have a trailer that I leave up by the barn and every day when they clean out the stalls, they fill up the trailer. And once it's full, they'll contact me and, I go and hook it up to my truck, bring it home and unload it. And so we accumulate huge amounts of, um, of manure mm -hmm. and which converts to compost. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I've, I've done a lot of experimental things with that. You know, the big thing is like fresh manure like that will heat up the decomposition process will take the temperature up to 160, 180 degrees. Mm. And so I've done some experiments with, uh, once I uh, took 200 feet of garden hose and snaked it through the pile and then filled it up with compost over the top. And it was running at about 160 degrees. And so, then I put a submersible pump in a bucket at the end of it. And then I took another hose and I had a, uh, 
a cold frame at the other end. And so I snaked the other hose to the cold frame. And so I had this warm water circulating through the whole system all winter long. And so we were able to grow so many things. I mean, you know, even a, a cold frame by itself is, is is a big help. But with that warm water circulating through it, it was just incredible. And it, you know, it was costing pennies to run like a small submersible pump like you'd use in a ornamental um, fountain, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. The next step that I've taken it to is to, um, I got interested uh, 10 years ago in biochar. And of course, biochar, the concept is um, converting uh, organic material to carbon, to charcoal. And then uh, you infuse that with nutrients and, you know, carbon has uh, the ability to like uh, once nutrients are infused in it, it like captures that, sequesters all the different uh, types of nutrients that plants need. And so two things, you know, uh, number one is it, the nutrients don't leach out in a lot of rain. Uh, the other is that uh, uh, it creates a, a very friendly environment for microbes and mycorrhizae, which also benefit the plants. And so uh, between you know, the mycorrhizae, the char, and the plant roots, it's like you're able to like totally optimize all the available nutrients that are in the soil that you're using. And so uh, I see this as, you know, being big game changer for agriculture, mm. you know, but, uh, but I'm able to do it uh, here, you know, and talking again about sustainability. So I have a, I'm getting the manure for free. So that's the compost. And so then there's a a business near here that uh, is a bee supply business. And so they make like bee gums, bee boxes, that sort of thing. So there's a tremendous amount of waste of this, you know, kiln dried wood in small pieces. And they, uh, they generate so much. I mean, I can go over and get a whole truck load of it for free. Hmm. They just dump it onto the trailer and I bring it home. And so I've got free manure compost. I got free wood. And so I set up a converter that is uh, a steel barrel, 55 gallon barrel with a smaller barrel inside of it. And so you create a situation, put a smokestack on it, pack it full of wood and you're able to have a pyrolysis con- uh, uh, retort container just in a barrel. I just bought a whole load of barrels this week uh, for $25 a piece. The 55-gallon barrels, you can almost get those given to you. Uh, so, 
you know, that's, you know, I, I know I've kind of gone off the rails in explaining the concept of, you know, uh, the energy flow, but it's all connected. And so as you learn more, you do more, you expand that out. And so between, you know, I do the Google mounds, cover it with the uh, biochar infused compost over the top of it and plants love it. They go crazy. All the pollinators are here. Um, and, you know, the habitat, you know, that's a big part of the energy flow. You know, mm -hmm. it's like we've created habitat for everything. We have snakes and lizards and reptiles and amphibians and fish and uh, lots and lots of birds and frogs and, you know, things like that. And it's it just makes me so happy when I walk out into the garden, you know, before it was all just kept mowed down and nice and neat looking. And, and now I go out there and there's a bird's nest in every bush. You know? mm. And so that's also, you know, the energy flow is not just how it relates to humans. It's how it relates to the whole ecosystem. And uh, so that's, that's what the objective is really. Ken, you're a mad genius. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Well, well thank you. <laughs> I've worked on it for a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I was, I don't know if, Taryn, you were thinking the same thing, but um, I was thinking, oh, you got to understand ley lines or something like the energetics that run through the earth. or, And I don't even know how you understand that or, or identify that. And But it's much more localized, it sounds like. It sounds like just... Uh, almost like community activism or something, you know, look where you can affect right. change in a small way. Yeah. And then that creates a little environment um, that's, um, you know, self-perpetuating and um, so in, in engendering and you know, like you're creating these little micro habitats that, and then you just keep going, just keep finding another place. Oh yeah, I can, I can help that thrive and yeah. oh, I can help that thrive. And then eventually it becomes a thriving community before you know it's a whole ecosystem. Exactly. But there is a metaphysical side to it too. Right on. Let's get there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's talk yeah. about that. Well, one of the things that comes to mind was a, a friend of mine many years ago, uh, who is also kind of a farmer nursery person. Um, he called me up one day and he was so excited because the night before he had taken magic mushrooms and he had had this experience. And he said during his experience, he was here on the land and that under the ground were, it was like this little um, community of gnomes. Mm that were like tending the fires that were, you know, helping things along. And they were so happy that we were here <laughs> because we were working together. <laughs> and uh, that was, a, that was an incredible vision. And I've really held that over the years uh, because I know that's, that's really true. Uh, you know, some of the, 
some of the Rudolf Steiner concepts of nature spirits and and all the different levels of of uh, spiritual entities that are part of nature. I mean, they're here too, you mm-hmm. know, and they're not really separate from all those other things. You know, a lot of the things we're doing on the physical plane are in the service of supporting these beings too. And so um, we rely on those (laughs) as much as we do on compost and fertilizer and (laughs) all those things, you know, because that's, uh, that's really what's sustaining it all, you know? And, and I think that's the part that is the most in danger by modern agricultural uh, techniques. You know, it's like, you know, trying to trying to grow food completely divorced from, you know, anything on the spiritual plane is just kind of going in the wrong direction. <laughs> And it's reflected in the quality of the food that you produce. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's all part of it. Yeah. So Ken, do you have um, specific protocols or principles in working with the spiritual beings that you engage with? Is it something that um, either through ceremony, ritual, or some kind of regular engagement is part of the permaculture project or is it not so clearly delineated? Well, for the most part, it's not so clearly delineated, but for me, uh, it kind of is Mm. because, you know, in my own life, I mean, you know, if, if I go out into the garden and, uh, you know, state of expanded consciousness uh my ability to like really resonate with the plants that are there and the beings that are there is so much enhanced um and so you know that for me is a really important thing you know i'm thinking back to one of the recent books by stephen buhner on um plant intelligence Mm -hmm. and the imaginal realms, Mm -hmm. you know, and the idea that, you know, everything, you know, has intelligence and everything has the ability to communicate with us if we're able to like open our uh, consciousness for that. And so that's, that's kind of where I am on it. You know, it's, uh, I don't have, at this point, you know, really specific rituals that I'm doing, you know, to accomplish that. But uh, it's just kind of part of the way of life, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I was listening to, um, there's a podcast called The Emerald that uh, a fellow whose name is Joshua Shry, who's a mythologist, more or less, um, has. It's a very beautiful podcast. And the most recent conversation and it's not really so much a conversation. It's usually him solo kind of uh, he's an incredible writer. And so he'll like write 
inquiry into a particular topic. And the most recent one was about resonance. And one of the things that he speaks to in, in that episode is, you know, when we think about what's going on with the plant world that, you know, plants have these oscillatory electromagnetic expressions that are ongoing, which is a form of song, right? And so that, you know, because of the the notion of rhythmic entrainment, that there's this possibility even uh, on a, a not particularly metaphysical level, but still in the subtler than the material, um, coming into a kind of harmony with those rhythms, right? And, and um, you know, so it's just, I think, really beautiful and fascinating to think about the continuity from in Chinese medicine what we would talk about as yin to what we would talk about as yang right that there's the stuff we can put our hands on you know so to speak that we can feel and see and grasp is inseparable from what's invisible but not necessarily always imperceptible um, so I'm just appreciating, you know, the way that you're speaking to this and, and how you, in, in your work and your development of, of your land, that there's such a deep relational resonance with all of these different dynamics and movements and beings. It's, it's very beautiful. Thank you. You know, it's uh, so many places in, you know, Native American and indigenous uh, cosmology, you know, the concept of singing the world mm -hmm. into being is, uh, is widely understood. Yeah. And, and I feel that, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's all a song. <laughs> The axle of the chariot of the axle of the chariot of the sun is said to be composed of praise song to the universe. Yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> yeah. So, how much of y'all's food, since we were talking about part of what um, you've been working towards since the beginning, is generating? food to support you and Cindy and I imagine many other beings um, human and, and other than human how much of y'all's food comes from the land these days well you know in terms of vegetable matter almost all of it <laughs> but you know we we are meat eaters mm -hmm. uh, we don't not big time meat eaters but we we do um buy that and you know cindy's really since she retired she's really gotten into baking and so we don't really buy much in the way of bread but we have to buy flour to make the bread and so there's those kinds of things mm -hmm. sugar and salt and you know all yeah. those uh but you know, in terms of percentage, I would say between 80 to 90% of our food we're producing here. And so, you know, 
the work that's involved with that is, of course, producing it, you know, uh, growing the plants, growing the garden, harvesting it, and then preserving it. Because, you know, as you know, very few vegetables last for a, for a really long time, with the exception of uh, sweet potatoes and winter squash and, a few th- and onions and a few things like that. But so it requires converting it into some form that you can keep. And so she's also become a master of jellies and jams and juices. And <laughs> and then I do a lot of uh, lactobacillus fermentation. And so we preserve a lot of things like that, mm-hmm. you know, for two or three months at a time. Mm-hmm. And which actually ups the the uh, amount of uh, nutrition that you're getting from it mm-hmm. and the microbes mm-hmm. and beneficial bacteria and things like that. Also, um, we make a lot of kombucha, make a lot of mead, mm-hmm. you know, cider, mm-hmm. you know, all those things. So, you know, huge part of, of growing your own food is, you know, storing it and mm. keeping it and you know because you can't always go out and get a uh you know a tomato in the middle of the winter you know <laughs> unless you have a really upscale greenhouse and mm-hmm. so you know we just uh we eat a lot of what's in season that's a big part of it and uh and during the winter one of the things that is is true that a lot of people don't realize is I can go out in the yard and pick a salad almost any day of the winter and it's going to be a whole lot more nutritious than anything that you're uh, going to be able to buy Uh, very different from you know a restaurant salad Um, also you know we rely big time on uh, mushrooms, wild mushrooms and cultivated mushrooms. Mm. And so we collect, you know, bushels and bushels of mushrooms all throughout the season. And we've learned how to preserve those best. And um, so we're able to have those throughout the year. And then, of course, uh, I'm growing some other varieties, including shiitake, and shiitake, um, I've got like four different strains that fruit at different temperatures. So, mm-hmm. so pretty much as long as the moisture's there, we're eating fresh mushrooms all mm-hmm. the time. And so, very few meals do we have here that don't have mushrooms <laughs> incorporated in them. And you know the nutritional, medicinal value of that is awesome you know it's uh and the fact that you know it's almost like free food you know it's like it's right there and it is a fruit so you're not disturbing the right. ecology mm-hmm. uh, collect them so can what um will you talk a little bit more about if i wanted to go into my yard in the winter and harvest a salad what what might that look like, or what does it look like in your yard? Maybe it wouldn't look the same in my yard, but uh, 
well, as long as you haven't sprayed with any uh, chemicals. Uh, first thing that comes to mind is chickweed. Chickweed, you know, grows throughout the winter uh, in almost every yard, even the ones <laughs> that use a lot of chemicals to try to keep it from growing. Chickweed is one. Um, uh, plantain, mm -hmm. it's really common. It's another one. Plantain, though, you probably either want to cook or another thing you can do with it is, um, you know, you can combine a lot of these different uh, yard weeds into uh, uh, put them in a blender with water and just make a drink. Mm. Uh, I have a good friend that that's how he starts his day every day. He goes out and picks a bunch of weeds and puts them in the blender and makes a, a green cocktail. Um, that's another way. Uh, dandelions. I mean, just about all year, except the middle of the summer, you can go out and pick dandelion greens, mm -hmm. which are very nutritious as well. Um, um, it's a weed called Gallinsoga that we like a lot. Uh, it's, it's more in like cultivated areas or garden beds, but, uh, it's really nutritious, really, uh, another good weed. Um, dock is another one. Um, and you know, thing about it is, in places where, you know, like urban areas and that sort of thing, you got so many introduced weeds that are there. And usually, like you can find uh, wild mustards or wild uh, uh, turnip greens or, um, you know, creasy greens, really common, you know, almost everywhere. And so... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just pretty incredible. That's wild. <laughs> what what's out there for free? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at these pictures, and I'm oh yeah, I had that in my front yard. Oh yeah, I had yeah. that in my front yard. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> it's amazing. You just have to take your basket with you next time. <laughs> Lucas, are you talking about your front yard in front of the apartment building? Um, or are no. you talking about growing up? I was going to say because yep. <laughs> That would be really yeah. impressive. It was very petite, the yard there. Yeah, the big warning about that is if it's not your land and you don't control it, you know, you got to know who's been spraying what and what they've been putting on it, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But, but here we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So... Ken, how many acres do y'all have? Um, it's a total of 64 acres. And how much of that is cultivated uh, in the sense, like I know that, um, you know, you've got your house, you've got the pond. I know the pond is tended to to some degree, but like how much of it is actively planted? Uh Probably six acres. Okay. And the rest of it's woodland. 
And that's an important feature of everything continuing, like those energetic flows that you were talking about. Absolutely. The woodland is an important part of that, right? Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little so, bit about that? Well, you know, one of the things, one of the first things that comes to mind is going back to water. Uh, we get our uh, water from a spring that just bubbles up out of the ground out here. And uh, the spring is like some of the purest, best water you can possibly drink. Um, and one of the reasons is because it comes out, it comes under the forest. Mm. And so rainfall and, you know, water that comes from the sky goes through the forest and the forest is like one of the most incredible filtration systems you could ever want. And so then it bubbles back up out of the ground as pure spring water. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big aspect of it. And then of course, for us, you know, wild foraging, you know, there's mostly what we forage from the forest around here are um, mushrooms but we also forage some plants that we use for making tea. There's a lot of medicinal plants that grow in the forest here. There's, um, you know, nuts. You know, we get acorns, we get hickory nuts, persimmons, you know, lots of things like that that are just um, filberts that are just part of the natural ecosystem. We don't have to really cultivate at all, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's really important in that way. And then of course, as we all know, you know, as a carbon sink and, mm -hmm. you know, um, producing clean air and, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's just invaluable, you know, all the, all the things that it provides. So even in the, the, the sort of cultivated spaces, are, are you, are you taking sort of a, almost a hands-off approach? Like a, like a one straw revolution kind of thing where you're just sort of uh, assisting anarchy or, or chaos where you know uh, you, you just kind of throw the seeds and and see um just kind of let nature take its course or are you actually physically trying to plant things or how does that look well you know the way i see it gardening is you know the definition of garden is vegetation management <laughs> you know so the unwanted you 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 have to control um, and you have to do some things to coax out the, uh, the types of food plants that you want to grow. But so really to answer your question is I do all of that. You know, there's places where, you know, um, I do some pretty serious cultivation and there's, a lot of wild areas around too and so we respect that and particularly uh for pollinators you know that's an important part but also one of the things i learned many years ago is that uh bare ground is not natural it's not a good thing 
And, you know, you can see why anytime you leave ground bare very long, it grows into a weed patch. Well, nature doesn't favor <laughs> bare ground. And so um, I have a whole, um, you know, uh, group of different types of seeds and plants that I use as ground covers, mm. depending on the time of the year, the, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish and on and on. And so in, in a lot of cases, uh, a good, for instance, is just this last week, we've, we've been harvesting tons and tons of field peas. So the field peas were actually planted as a ground cover. And so anytime that, you know, I'm harvesting something and it's going to be fallow for a while, I plant, you know, usually it's always a mixture. And so that was just one of the plants in the mix. But um, I don't leave ground bare for more than a day or two mm. <laughs> and it gets something on it, you know. And, and in a lot of cases, you know, I use things like brassicas, you mm-hmm. know, different, like different kinds of turnips and mustards and things like that as ground covers, which we are able to harvest. And you can even multi-crop with that. You know, like right now I have a couple of beds of brassicas out here that also have uh, uh, garlic. I just planted garlic and the garlic grows up through that. And so you can have both of those things happening at the same time. Um, Also, during the the winter time, you know, again talking about salads and greens and that sort of thing, we rely a lot on the wild stuff. But there's things like uh, Austrian peas, which you know, generally most of the cover crops lean pretty heavily towards legumes, you know, uh, various kinds of legumes, and so Austrian peas are an excellent cover crop and the you eat the shoots of the peas mm. um, so you know it's actually food even though it's uh, sorry about that that's all right <laughs> um so you eat the you eat the shoots of it and it tastes very much like fresh uh, green peas mm. in the spring and so eat them raw and so i mean you can make a salad just out of that but it's serving the purpose of uh as a nitrogen fixer and and uh and increasing the fertility of the ground usually i interplant that with vetch another legume or you know uh sometimes uh grains like oats uh that uh, have deep root systems and have a way of uh, pulling a lot of the nutrients that have leached more deeply into the ground up to the surface. Mm. And so uh, a combination like that, uh, to me, is just as important as the vegetable patch that I'll plant there next year. Mm -hmm. And so I rotate the bed so that I've always got some beds that are purely ground covers 
and the other part of that is uh, it took a long time to convert me, but I'm completely converted now to the idea that tilling is a disaster <laughs> for okay. growing plants. You know, it's like uh, when you do that, you know, you release like huge amounts of nitrogen and you um, set up the conditions for erosion and you, you know, there's so many problems with that. Whereas like using this method of ground covers. So I'll, uh, I'll um, uh, grow the ground covers and then I'll mow that down. And then um, I have some, um, some tarps that I use and I put tarp over it for about two weeks that'll kill out any unwanted vegetation. And I just pull that back and plant directly into it. And so that way I'm never disturbing the microbes or the, uh, the nutrient matrix that is near the surface of the soil. And uh, I'm finding that to be definitely an improvement. <laughs> uh, so you just use a small, shovel or a hoe to create an opening and then put the start in like that or yeah yeah got it exactly it seems like actually a more energy efficient way to do it oh it is it's right? less Be work yeah it's exactly. really less work you're just and a smarter you, farmer in a lot of ways you don't you, know? you don't open it up to a bunch of weeds right you know, the minute you till it the weeds are going to start coming up in this case the plants of the cover crop become like a mulch mm -hmm. right and so you just leave that mulch in place plant down through it the mulch decomposes adds to the nutrient base and uh you know it's a win-win situation how how do you know like how long do you know how long do you usually leave the tarps on uh you know usually it depends on um the time of year and the temperature but mm -hmm. Typically two weeks. As it gets cooler, you might need to leave it three weeks. Mm -hmm. But it kills, it it smothers out all the weeds and plants that are on the surface, and so then, you know the the you know the goal is to get what you're intending to grow there, in, and get it up and going. Uh, ahead of the weeds. It's not like you're fighting against the weeds. I mean, I don't ever go out there like hoe the rows or anything like that. I mean, my parents, that was a big thing. You know, you'd have to hoe it like every two weeks, but I don't ever do that. And, mm -hmm. and so what I've found is you don't have to eliminate weeds or unwanted vegetation. You just have to control it and keep it from overwhelming what you're growing, you know, and yeah, that works really well. So basically you're, you're, you want your crop to thrive over top of the weeds. So however that. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And so the weeds actually uh, serve a purpose too, you know, because they're almost like a living mulch. They help to conserve moisture that they're, you know, a lot of them are great pollinator plants. You know, they serve a lot of useful purposes as long as you don't 
let them overwhelm your uh, the, your crop. So a lot of times, you know, if if there if that's happening, rather than go out there and and dig them out, I'll go out there with some shears and just shear them off. Mm-hmm. So that it's given the advantage to what I'm growing, and by the time they grow back up, they're you know they're secondary, but they're not really taking anything away from the crop either. It sounds like um, potentially that you know you could go in basically pick yourself a salad and have a dual purpose you know you're allowing for your crops to thrive and also you just fed yourself right and so a lot of those weeds that people are fighting in their gardens are like chickweed gallon soga all these things that are are edible and nutritious uh that you're fighting against so that you can grow something else you know so it makes me think that um it's almost it's almost it it's so obvious when you break it down like this that um the sort of hierarchy or the way that you're like the the land is showing you how you should eat you know you right. so as the crops are growing <clears throat> that are higher in nutritional value um you're eating the other things daily you're eating these salads and things and and weeds um to which have, like you say, a nutritional value. And some of them we even use on herbal medicine. Um, like we steam them or we um, make a decoction out of them. Yeah, exactly. And then, and that's, you know, cleaning you and giving you certain nutrients. And then once the crops are grown, then that's more abundant and you can eat, eat those. And then uh, as you're waiting for the pigs to get fat, eating the other things, you know, then right. eventually you eat a pig. You know what I mean? It's It seems right. like... Yeah. It's this. I'm 42 years old, and this is finally making sense how I should actually eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just pay attention to nature. Uh, I read a book several years ago by this woman, Joe Robinson. She she writes for New York Times uh, a lot, and she's published several books. But uh, one her first book that really gained notoriety was about grass fed beef. But the book that that I'm referring to is called uh, eating on the wild side. And so she had done a lot of scientific work on uh, nutrition and looking at the nutrition of different kinds of plants. And so, you know, her conclusion and the whole premise of this book is that the closer a plant comes to its wild form, the higher the nutritional value of it is. And so, you know, she broke it down in many different ways. So you you have things that, even things that are grown for garden salads and things like that, like arugula and some of the mustards and things like that, that are not that different from the wild form. And those are really high in nutrition, dandelions, you know, on and on like that. And then you get into like more of the cultivated plants and the direction has been over the past hundred years, at least, uh, towards 
things that are more bland. Mm -hmm. You think about the American diet. We don't eat hot too much. Some of us, uh, we don't eat sour. We don't eat bitter. Those are all things that are, those are signals that this is something your body needs, mm -hmm. you know? And so the more you incorporate those things is uh, nutritionally so much better than, you know, the more bland iceberg lettuce kind of salad with ranch dressing. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that's, that's so true and I already knew it, you know, I've, in my bones, I already knew it. But after reading that book, I think about it all the time, you know, when I go out there and it's like, man, a lot of uh, tastes like bitter that used to be repulsive to me are like, my body wants it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I think that's an, uh, that's an important part of it. And then, you know, taking that idea and, and kind of morphing into like, uh, um, you know, heirloom seeds. And so that's one of the, one of the directions that we've been going for the last several years is like, I mean, there's a lot of food plants that uh, are a specific, um, are so specific. They only come from like one county here in the mountains or one family in some cases, you know, like beans that are only grown by one particular family or, you know, and then because uh, with, you know, early agriculture, you know, saving your seeds was the thing. And so many, many, many different selections came out of that. And uh, from those, um, uh, the nutritional value is like it far outweighs because that's not a consideration for commercial seed companies. You know, they're looking at productivity and wide appeal and things like that. And so most of the seeds they're selecting are based on that. But, um, but th there's a whole different direction there where, you know, these are plants that are open pollinated and have existed in their, you know, current form for a very long time. And uh, and so we're big supporters of the whole uh, seed exchange program, you know. Um, What's the seed exchange program? Well, uh, uh, there's, you know, the, the big... Uh, organization of that is uh, um, International Seed Savers. And so that's like a big international organization. There's many other smaller organizations. Uh, there's a Seed Savers group down in the Triangle area. There's uh, here in the mountains. A uh, good friend of ours, Jim Vetito, he did his graduate thesis on heirloom seeds of the Southern Appalachians. Mm. And it's, it always blows my mind to visit him because he's got like freezers full. He's got the seed repository, uh, like over a hundred different varieties of green beans. 
<laughs> that kind of thing. And, um, and so there's enough interest in it. And so what's been happening is, you know, the seed savers uh, organize these uh, gatherings and everybody brings whatever seeds, their favorite seeds are seeds that they have grown and it's just an exchange, no money involved. So you don't ever have to buy seeds, you know. There's always seeds, you know, people, uh, sometimes I, I've talked to people that are, you know, kind of, of the apocalyptic mindset and they're thinking about what all they need to stockpile to survive. And I said, I got my box of seeds. That's all I need. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Yeah. It really is, you know, uh, because you won't run out of that. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. So, Ken, one thing we haven't touched on too much, um, certainly it's been referenced in this conversation, uh, you know, in terms of the mycorrhizal networks and the fact that y'all are foraging mushrooms and cultivating some mushrooms. Um, but you know an unbelievable amount about fungi. And I am wondering if we can kind of take a turn into the mycelial space and maybe hear from you about like what got you interested when you got interested, um, you know, how it's been to be a student of that when it was something that people really didn't know anything about. <laughs> Cause I know you've been in this area of inquiry and exploration for a decent amount of time. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear hear some of that story if you'd be willing to share it with us. Sure. Well, um, uh, I think I bought my first field guide in 1978 and I had a hard time even finding a field guide. I mean, if you went to the library, uh, it was even hard to find a mushroom guide, you know, just like, uh, there, wasn't enough interest or whatever. And so what got me interested, you know, I have to go back to my childhood. Uh, probably the thing that got me most intrigued about mushrooms was when my mom said, don't you touch those nasty toadstools. <laughs> Guess what I did? <laughs> And so I remember that. And, and one of the reasons I referenced that is that when I became an adult and got into a serious study of mushrooms, more than once I picked up a mushroom that I'm now familiar with. And I recognize that smell from when I was 10 years old or mm -hmm. 12 years old, you know, uh, and I had no idea what it was, you know. So. Um, so th there was that, and then always, you know, the interest in mushrooms and the interest in plants are so are parallel universes for me, and so uh, I've always been interested in both. And so when I started studying botany as a serious thing, 
and going out and identifying wildflowers and wild plants. I remember the first year, the first spring and summer that uh, I was in a serious study of the wildflowers just happened to be an incredible mushroom year. You know, all the rains were right. And so everywhere I went, I just saw all these mushrooms. And so I was like blown away by it. And um, I took specimens back to my professors, my botany professors. They they didn't have any idea, you know. And so I couldn't find anybody that knew anything. Uh, occasionally, you'd run across uh, an old-timer around here that had picked morels or uh, milk mushrooms or something like that. And that was kind of handed down from uh, their elders and so a little bit of that but other than that nothing and so i first bought the audubon society field guide to mushrooms and so i started just a study on my own um and pretty quickly within a year or two i was up to i was regularly eating maybe six or eight different species and uh i felt like that was pretty good you know and so then i found out about this organization uh, it's called nama the national association um, of uh, the the national association of mushrooms um, and it's a it's, it was an amateur group but they involved a lot of the professional mycologist and so so by then i'd gotten a couple other field guides too and so i found out about this and the that year they they have this annual event that's in different parts of north america and so that year it just happened to be up in west virginia mm. in an area that i really wanted to visit anyway canaan valley and so um I decided to go and and drove up there and of course I walk in and there's like this huge room of tables and there's like hundreds of different species of mushrooms all laid out on the tables and labeled that had been collected right in that area and you know first off you know I went directly to the ones that I've been eating <laughs> just to make sure and and i was relieved to find out that i had been correct in my identification <laughs> and so that was that that was a big relief and so then just uh um you know meeting the people there were quite a few of the big time mushroom gurus that were there and getting to meet them in person, you know, it was a big deal. And, uh, I also met some people that, uh, were more local and there was, uh, three or four people from Asheville that were there. And one person who was one of the elders of mycology who actually lived in Statesville at the time, and so I was blown away, you know, here's people in my community. And so the Asheville folks were getting ready to start a, a mushroom club 
and so um, we had been, you know, organizing some groups to go out around here a little bit by then. And uh, John Bond used to be a professor up at ASU. And um, he and I went out to Asheville and did the first foray. That's about 40 years ago um, out there. And, and as it turned out, there was a couple of people in that group that had connections with other mycologists and so very quickly we started having these pretty big events people would travel from far away to come here and so i went from learning you know my goal was to learn two or three species a year in the beginning to like i mean it was like blasting off and it was like i couldn't even keep count anymore you know and my library just kept growing and growing <laughs> and so uh so anyhow uh, went through all that and eventually to the point of uh feeling competent i kept being asked you know to like lead these hikes or do a class or that sort of thing. And so eventually I started doing that. And so I've been, been doing that for like 30 years now and, uh, uh, leading mushroom events and doing classes and, and that sort of thing. And so the journey has also been an opportunity for me to continue to learn and expand my knowledge of the fungal world too, you know, so, um, and that continues, you know, uh, uh, more recently, you know, one of the challenges that's been thrown our way is, you know, once they, once they came into the tools of DNA sequencing, all of a sudden mushroom taxonomy is kind of gets stood on its head mm -hmm. and everything that we thought we knew in the past turns out to be not exactly correct. <laughs> and so there's all these new names and new concepts to keep up with. But, you know, bottom line is I've never gotten sick from eating mushrooms and I've never killed anybody <laughs> eating mushrooms. <so. laughs> it's a good track record. A lot, a lot to be said yeah. for that. <laughs> Do you feel like there are, um, unique lessons, teachings, um, experiences, maybe we'll put experiences to the side for a second, cause that's a, a potentially a different road, but, um, that studying fungi have offered you that extend beyond just the, the kind of like joy of understanding more about them as beings themselves, but that, that are, somehow expanding your understanding of the world, yourself, community. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, the mycelial networks are talked about in a lot of different areas these days. Um, right. And yeah. so I'm curious to, to know some of your thoughts on what it is that you feel like you have learned and are learning from the fungi. Okay. I'm going to take a quick bathroom break and I'll be right back. And get into that. 
dude. <laughs> Ken's awesome. That's great. There's a couple of other conversations that I have not touched on that we could mm. have with him that I would like to have at some point. Mm. I'm assuming this is going to get edited out of this, so I'm just... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no worries. Um, but, you know, like, we could have a whole conversation about his relationship with Terrence McKenna, right, and kind of, like, what it was like to be part of that crew and, you know, working with psilocybin and knowing Sasha Shulgin and, like, mm -hmm. you know, so some of these things I think would be super interesting. Yeah, definitely, because it would be even for 90 minutes, which is insane. Right. It's a bit much for 90 minutes because I think this has been a really captivating. Totally. That's like, why I've tried to keep it kind of like, I, yeah. you know, that's why I was like, let's not talk about experiences necessarily yeah. because that takes us <laughs> into the like, you know, the psychedelic yeah. space, which I feel like it's a great conversation, but not for today. So we'll, we'll wrap it with this and then. Okay. That sounds good. I'm just thinking about that, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a whole a whole nother session. Well, actually, that's what we were literally just talking about, is there's a few other conversations that I've tried to um, keep us from opening up. And so I'm, I, I'm specifically wondering, like, I'm going to uh, constrain it a little more. Um, so not in a psychedelic or a, or a um, specifically consciousness altering through engagement kind of inquiry, but like more on the level of as you understand and work with fungi, um, you know, cultivating them or, um, you know, what you've learned about how, how they are as, as natural beings. I'm wondering if you have some thoughts that you want to share about that. Like, you know, not, it's a very broad question, but I'm, I'm sort of yeah. like rooting it in the material for this particular conversation. Yeah, I understand. Um, although, you know, first I have to say it's kind of hard to, yeah, <laughs> to peel that off, yeah. but, uh, because it, it, it's all so connected and that's that's what i've learned from the fungi more than anything else well then screw it's my like... question answer it however you feel like it <laughs> <laughs> well it's like this you know it's like uh they're a fundamental part of everything in nature you know so there's fungi there there are fungi that are parasitic there are fungi that are saprophytic. There are fungi that, you know, are um, um, that that eat insects. There are fungi that, you know, that are mycorrhizal that are in a true sense of symbiosis. And so, uh, you know, I remember having this really strong vision many years ago about the whole concept of community. And it's like the fungi have a lot to teach us about how to be in community because they can exist in a, um, you know, in a static state uh, as part of an ecosystem for a very long time. A good example of that is uh Going back to like you might remember a few many years ago, there was this big news release about 
the largest living organism had been discovered and it was a mushroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't a mushroom. It was uh, a fungal mycelial network. And so the impetus for that study was to try to, it was a parasitic fungus Mm. and it was in an old growth forest. And so they wanted to study this fungus to see how serious the detrimental effects on the forest were of this, the presence of this mushroom. And so uh, that was, you know, one of the first big studies like that they did that they had the tools of DNA sequencing. And so they went out and they set up a bunch of transects over several square miles and they uh, collected fungi from uh, specimens from each of those transects and brought them back to the laboratory and sequenced them. And it turns out they were all the same being. Mm. They were fruit of the same tree. And and it covered like several square miles. And uh, so that really, you know, stirred up a lot of interest. So they did a they did a computer model of that and and found that the mycelial network of that mushroom uh weighed more than a than a great whale <laughs> you know it was it was like huge and then since then they found others that were even larger but the other things that they found about that were that um um not only was it not detrimental to the health of the forest it was it was into very important for the uh health of the forest in that it uh, helped to preserve the genetic in- integrity of the forest. So if a tree was weak or weakened by, you know, lightning strike or whatever disease, uh, it would very quickly uh, move in as a parasite and take it out. But until that happened, it existed as a mycorrhizal symbiont. And so it was like, it was living in harmony with the trees, but anytime there was one that that was uh, not genetically uh, strong enough, they took it out, you know. And so uh, once they really looked into that, they determined that the fungus was as old or maybe older than the oldest tree in that forest. So it had been there from the get-go. And that forest wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for this parasitic fungus that was growing there. So, you know, that's just an an example, but... Uh, it calls into question the notion of parasitism in this particular situation. Exactly. Right? Like, really? Is it a parasite if it's adaptive and integral to the, the health of this forest? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And then... And then there's the concept of what is dead. Mm-hmm. Nothing's dead. Right. <laughs> you know, you see a, a dead tree. It's not dead. There's as much life happening in that wood as there ever was when the tree was living, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, there's that. And so, um, 
so yeah i mean good and bad don't don't exist in nature you know it's uh and particularly when it comes to fungi you know it's like um you know there people get so focused on the fact that there are some fungi that can kill you there are but there i can count them on one hand mm. how many hundreds thousands that help you you know, so when I teach uh, mushroom ID classes, usually the first thing we go to are that handful that could kill you. Mm. If you take those off the menu, you've got a little wiggle room right. <laughs> to be able to like experiment a little bit, mm -hmm. you know. And so, um, so there's that, um, and. Just the, the level of cooperation, you know, it's like even the saprophytes, they don't attack uh, wood until it's dead. Mm -hmm. And once it's dead, they immediately go to work converting it back to something that the next tree or the next plant or the next, you know, can utilize. And so, uh, so there's no bad there, right. you know ever um and even you know like with the the parasitic fungi uh you know a lot of a lot of the parasitic fungi can live on or in a tree for decades without killing it or and you know i've always wondered about that is i mean there's something like uh, give and take there between the tree and the fungus you know um yeah, yeah just... sounds like our perception of what's going on is too limited to actually understand what that relationship entails, because at least as I've always heard parasitism defined, right, the one being is just taking and to, in some respects, to the detriment of the other being, right? Like it's, right. there, there yeah. is not mm -hmm. a, any positive uh, reciprocal flow, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm just taking advantage of this system. I might not be killing it. It might not be in my best interest to kill it. But at the same time, it's still not for its benefit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I think that particularly when it comes to fungi, that, you know, doesn't apply. Thinking about one of the stories in, um, from Paul Stamets about uh, – cordyceps uh, mm -hmm. that are parasitized insects so there's one down in the uh, amazonian rainforest uh attacks a flying insect takes over its ner nervous system the insect flies to the top of the forest attaches itself to a twig and dies the mushroom grows out of the body of the insect and spreads spores for miles and miles <laughs> it's like you know there's all kinds of things like that that are happening and so there's some sacrifice and there's some benefits mm -hmm. you know and it's uh, that's just the way nature operates you know uh so so ken i think that's probably a good place for us to put a pin in it for now do you have yeah, any okay final thoughts that you want to share with folks um you know definitely i want to continue this conversation down the road yeah but this is just a, a 
you know, where we, I think we ought to pause it because it's been super rich. And I think <laughs> it gives people a yeah. lot to consider and think about. Well, you know, um, between plants and fungi, um, on many, many, many different levels, as you know, have made my life so much richer and every day is richer because of it. And so, um, you know, for anybody that, you know, really is considering a study of nature on any level, I seriously, uh, uh, encourage that. And, you know, it's like the kind of thing it's free, it's there and, uh, and it's rich and, all you have to do, you know, in a lot of things in nature, you, you've you never seen them because you've never been looking for them. Uh, fungi are a perfect example of that. I mean, I grew up in the woods and I see things every year that I never saw before in the same area. It's not that it wasn't there, but I didn't know to look for it. So I guess that's uh, the big thing, you know, it's like if you want to make your life a whole lot richer, this is a good place to go. Beautiful. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time on your birthday to chat with us. Um, I'm cool. super grateful. Cool. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and I, I'm you know, grateful for the years of our friendship as well. So. Absolutely. Me too, Tara. Thanks, brother. And good to meet you, Lucas. You too. Thank you, Ken, so much. And so I guess I'll have birthday cake for lunch. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs>